1: This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News travel editor Peter Greenberg.
0: Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast from Dallas. Scott McCartney, travel editor emeritus of the Wall Street Journal and co host of the podcast Airlines Confidential, stops by to talk about the airline seat as political battleground. It's a fascinating discussion about where we stand in terms of government, airlines, and the possibility of re-regulation. Then, as we approach the 60th anniversary of the assassination of JFK, Stephen Fagan, the curator of the sixth floor museum in Dealey Plaza, on one of America's most tragic, defining moments, and what it meant for the world, not to mention what it meant for Dallas. And then, a defining chef, not just for Dallas, but the world, Dean Faring, on the dynamics and the psychology of the changing food scene, but perhaps most important, what he won't take off the menu. First up, Scott McCartney.
1: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move, or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
2: Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it.
0: Mr. Scott McCartney in person. How are you, sir? I'm great, Peter. Good to be with you. You know, Every week I talk about something related to this, which is either airline seat size in terms of comfort, airline seat size seat size in terms of, of safety and evacuation, and of course, airline seat size in terms of, guess what, how much you're paying for your ticket. Uh, you've got a story now that, that covers all three in the most ironic way, yeah. and part of it has to do with the proposed merger. Of JetBlue and Spirit, which yeah. by the way is being fought
3: now by the Justice Department, right? And 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 that's the point. I, I think the airline seat has become a political battleground. Um, it's a, it's a source of great frustration for all of us, um, and and I think it's been highlighted by the post pandemic travel surge. Planes are more crowded, so so you're more uncomfortable, and and this has really gained G-G, traction. I had noticed, yeah, yeah. But what's happening is the the government is talking out of both sides of its mouth. And some might say that's no surprise. Yeah, what's but, new there? Um, <laughs> But um, the president has attacked airline seat fees and there's an effort underway in Congress to legislate seat size to come up with a minimum standard for seat size.
0: Let's go back to 2018 when Congress ordered the FAA to come up with a standard for what's considered an acceptable safe seat. They weren't talking about comfort. They were talking about safety. And the FAA essentially slow walked the whole thing. Nothing ever happened. Yeah. Then the FAA gets sued in court. And the FAA wins. Yeah, I mean, the, the a federal court in Washington basically said that the plaintiffs didn't make a, a credible case arguing safety here. How could you not make a credible case arguing safety when you see the pitch, meaning the, the, the distance between the seat in front of you and your knees uh, getting narrower and narrower?
3: Well, i give you a quick answer to that. Um, the problem with the safety question is it's actually safer if you're closer to the seat in front of you in an accident because you're going to hit that seat in front of you and if you're closer you travel less distance injuries won't be as severe all right stop right there i'm, yes. I'm, 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 I'm mad at you now okay. because right.
0: because it's not just about the the,
3: the, the you know the, the distance you may or may not fly
0: it's the distance it takes you to get out of that seat and safely evacuate the plane. That's,
3: that's correct. And the evacuation limiter is the emergency door. So if you get out of your seat quicker, you wait in the aisle longer. It doesn't get you out of the airplane it faster. Like just
0: sent to my room by my parents. <laughs> I
3: mean, it's an argument. This, basically, that's why you're th- staying in your room. This is this is based on research that the FAA did years ago in Oklahoma City, but also research that was done in Australia and research that was done in the UK. Right, Bo- then then both physical questions. and and computer simulations. All
0: right, let me ask the stupid question number three of the day. Yeah, and that is every airline. Are they? Is, is this not true? Has to demonstrate. That they can safely evacuate a fully loaded plane
3: with half the exits blocked in the dark in less than ninety seconds. Uh, th- well, that's that's this st- that is the standard for every airplane. Correct. So the so the manufacturers take care of that.
0: Fine. And who do they hire? The cast of Cirque du Soleil. I mean, come on. And now they're allowed to do yeah. it on a, as a, a computer simulation. Th- this is nuts.
3: Well, we haven't had a new airplane in a, in a long time, but. Um, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, you, you, you make a good point. I would also argue that in the accidents that we've had, people have gotten out. And I mean, think about the, the, um, uh, the San Francisco accident where the plane did the a dark. cartwheel. Hit the dark. Right, hit the dark. The, the only people who... Asiana. Asiana. And, uh, and a woman got thrown from the airplane because she wasn't wearing her seatbelt and uh and, and, and two
0: people died because they were run over by a fire Two people
3: truck. died because they were run over by a fire truck correct but so the that plane evacuated but
0: can i tell you how they were able to evacuate the plane broke up people could just walk out
3: right but there have been many many examples okay
0: can i give you one on the flip side yeah all right september 2015 uh, british airways flight in las vegas it was the captain's retirement flight if you can believe this yeah and as he's going down the runway just as he's approaching v1 that's his decision speed for rotating really right. or stopping right uh the left engine blows up yeah and the whole wing is on fire he successfully and, and miraculously aborts remember he was fully loaded he was he was at max gross takeoff right he f- he's able to stop the plane I remember all right how long was the
3: evacuation Uh, that I don't remember but they all got out
0: wait a minute okay here we go almost nine minutes Nine minutes
3: with well, a plane they, on fire. That, I just thought I'd mention that, yeah, no it, but but you could also argue that they all got out. but let me let me go back to
2: <laughs> no, okay. they did
3: and and Lucky them and yeah, no, i I think the there's an interesting dynamic going on with with the government and the jetBlue spirit merger where the the Justice department lawsuit argues that uh jetBlue is going to take away fees that spirit charges and this is at the same time that the president is arguing junk fees in travel should be eliminated right so JetBlue would seem to be doing the right thing with spirit from the president's perspective but the wrong thing from the justice department's perspective likewise the why, justice why is, that,
0: why is that the wrong thing
3: why is it the wrong thing? Yeah. Be, well, you, you. it depends on if you're a fan of airline fees. Um, By the Spirit, way, let me, let me just poll my audience right now. Uh, Anybody listening to me a fan of airline
0: fees? Okay. Uh, poll over. Okay. Right.
3: Now, the the argument is uh, you get what you pay for. Um, at Spirit, the average fee take per passenger is higher than the average fare. Well, but you so know you why? pay more. Because
0: of, that, because of taxes. Uh, that's how they've done it. An airline fare is taxed at a very high federal excise tax, and a fee is taxed at a sales tax. So if the airline wants to retain more of what they're charging for, they'll charge you $2 for the airline ticket and $200 for the bag.
3: Yeah, but it's more than that because it's bait and switch because they can advertise a $39 fare and then hit you with $80 of fees. Well, of course. It's the same. We're talking about the same thing. Right. And so, so that's one side of it. The other side is the Justice Department is upset, and, and this is one of the points in its lawsuit against the merger, um, is upset that JetBlue would reduce the seat density on Spirit Airplanes. And that's well, what okay, we all want exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a it's a very odd situation. But there's one more thing, Scott. And let's be honest
0: about this: JetBlue and Spirit are two very different airlines, yeah. with two very different cultures. And some might even argue two very different markets.
3: Well, yeah, yes, and no. Um, JetBlue needs more um, presence in the middle part of the country, and Spirit actually has built up really good presence here in Dallas, in Houston. In, uh, in Chicago and other places where JetBlue is really weak. JetBlue is strong on the coast, but you can't run an airline that's just a barbell Uh, of East Coast and West Coast.
0: All right, Scott, so we've got this six of one, half a dozen of the other in this argument about who's going to win this battle, assuming the merger with Spirit and JetBlue even goes through. Yeah. The bottom line, and then you've got President Biden and the U.S. Department of Transportation on the other end saying let's get rid of junk fees, whether they're resort fees at hotels or fees for families to sit together on a plane. Right. Or, you know, ridiculously, I won't say ridiculous, but somewhat surprising sometimes baggage fees on the low fare carriers that people may not be ready for. Yeah. Because we're motivated by fare. Right. By fees
3: that's right that's right and there's a there's a difference psychologically to what you pay when you buy the ticket and then what you have to pay at the airport
0: by the way i, I went on spirit's website prior to coming to talk to you today and i was looking at a at a, at a fair from nashville to orlando it was 35 mm-hmm. non-stop which is great mm-hmm. you don't have to go through charlotte on yeah. american or atlanta on delta sure so that's a pretty good enticement and then bags okay and first of all the bag fees are very expensive number yes. one now if you book and, the bag fee dis-
3: online and deceptive Yes. because Spirit has a forty-pound limit, and everybody else—not everybody else—has a fifty. But it's more standard to say fifty-pound. If you have a forty-five-pound bag, you're not only going to pay bag fees, you're going to pay overweight bag fees, and that bag would not be overweight on other airlines.
0: All right, but even so, I looked at the fare categories of the bag fees, right? Mm-hmm. And if you if you book the bag online, mm-hmm. it was X. Yeah. If you book the bag the day before, right? It was. Also, and if you book the bag at the airport. Airport, you had to mortgage your house.
3: Yes, exactly.
0: Why is Spirit suffering from overweighted planes? When I look at a Spirit flight when it lands, very few bags come off because people don't want to spend that money.
3: Yeah, no, this is the definition of junk fees, right? Yeah. There's no operational reason why there's a difference. If Spirit knows the bags coming seven days earlier, it doesn't change anything for the for the load weight and balance planning of the flight or in, anything like that. It is simply a way to run the fare up higher. You know, if you don't buy it right away. When you buy the ticket, and you buy it later, or you show up at the airport—God forbid—and you are going to have to mortgage your house, it's just a way of running running up the meter.
0: Now, let's flip the table here. They're not guilty of not of
3: failing to disclose; they're disclosing. Yeah.
0: I mean, they're, they're telling you right there what you're going to have to pay.
3: Yeah. I mean, the consumer advocates would say, hey, you ought to be able to, on their website, say, I'm going to check two bags. What's the, What do they weigh? 45 pounds. This is what it's going to cost you to travel. So you could make an apples to apples comparison. It's very hard to make apples to apples comparisons right now.
0: All right. Now I'm going I'm to switch gears until I uh, do another one it has been a pet peeve of mine for years when it comes to what you just mentioned about baggage weight. Uh-huh. When I go to the supermarket and I go to the produce section hmm. and I get get a bunch of grapes i weigh them yes right Uh and or they weigh them at the checkout counter and they they have their metric about what how much how much per pound of grape costs and that's what you're charged right well who's inspecting the scales the city department of weights and measures and they put a little stamp on that scale saying it's inspected as accurate this is the date of the inspection who's inspecting the scales at the airport i
3: suspect nobody
0: well there you go so my question is it's your word against theirs which is why i now pack with me a personal scale yeah It, it attaches to the handle of the of the bag so when they say you're overweight, it's like, no, I'm not. And now the question is, who's going to win that argument? But at least if more people did
3: that, they might inspect the scales. Yeah, no, that, those handheld scales <laughs> actually saved my marriage. Uh, they, you want to they, explain that? Uh, yeah. So I used to give my kids a hard time. They'd go to camp. They'd load up suitcases and all, and and I'd give them a hard time if, if if they we got to the airport and they were overweight. Best Father's Day gift ever. Portable scale, so we could figure it out all before we went to the airport. <laughs>
0: But seriously, I mean, when you think about all the things you need to, to know before you ever get to the airport to basically be able to anticipate the abuse you might get, you know, you need some tools.
3: Yeah, no, that's that's exactly right. And and you need some fairness. And, you know, I think I think most airlines will give you some latitude on, hey, if you're 52 pounds, we'll, we'll let it go. I have not uh, had that experience. Yeah, interesting. I
0: mean, I'm sorry. I you're gonna, here's what's funny. Uh, yeah. So you
3: get to the gate.
0: I mean, excuse me, you get to the counter and your bag shows up at 52.5. I'm sorry, sir. So you're going to have to take stuff out of that bag yeah where am i going to put it my carry-on bag is that going to change the weight of the plane no No. what are they doing and, and by the way they're not orthopedic surgeons at, at, with the baggage guys doing medical examinations based on my the weight of my bag
3: yeah yeah no and the, look the weight of passengers and bags is a whole nother thing i mean they, they do keep track in some well particularly for international flights keep track of the weight of the baggage right that well because goes they, in they the get airplane. so much more money say, for that right. Right. well and and because it's tricky with with load planning and and fuel planning but uh, the airlines actually had to increase the passenger weight. Oh, um, sure. they, they, they yeah, on the I, I love this. because we're well, all getting bigger. I know
0: <laughs> they, 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 their average weight when they, you know when, when that somebody person when that person walks in the cockpit right before they close the gate and the door with a piece of paper. That's giving the pilot their weight and balance. But in terms of passenger load, there's no scale at the at the jetway. No. when you walk through. Thank there God. Is, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> they're estimating, right? Yeah. Well, if they're estimating. Guess what? There used to be estimated that the average weight of people were like 150 pounds. Lie. Yeah. Absolute lie.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, a, it's, not, it's prescribed by the FAA of, you know, it's 100 and whatever uh, pounds per passenger that they have to calculate. But, well, you know, the good news is most the airplanes get off the
0: ground and they fly. They do. And of course, you know, necessity being the mother of invention, there was this garment made a couple of years ago called the Scott E-Vest. It was a <laughs> coat. That made you look like a bad impression of the of the Michelin tire man. It has something like forty different pockets. You wore your bag, right? And you just took it off and put it through the conveyor belt, wore it again, and there and they couldn't tell you you couldn't get on the plane. Yeah,
3: you were wearing your bag. Simply a baggage fee dodge. But the, you know, this is the world that airlines have created with baggage fees.
0: My thanks to Scott. So where were you on nine eleven, or when World War two ended? or maybe even when the Mets won their first World Series. If you were alive then, then you can undoubtedly remember precisely your location, what you were thinking about, and what you were doing. So what about November 22nd, 1963, the day JFK was assassinated? Stephen Fagan knows all about it, because he's the curator of the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas, where Lee Harvey Oswald took aim at the president. It's a special museum with the story of JFK and his death lives on.
1: Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only 14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door.
2: Stephen, nice to talk to you. Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: I mean, I'm I'm in shock, quite frankly, that it's 60 years. I mean, oh my God, I'm feeling very old for for a change. And then I'm not feeling very old at all because to me, it was just like yesterday.
2: I hear that quite often. We have an oral history project at the museum. We've interviewed over 2,000 people about their memories of that day, and very similar to yours particularly with baby boomers. It was definitely a defining moment of their generation. And it's interesting you mentioned Challenger because that's really the first major national tragedy that I remember, and that's been a, a cultural touchstone that I've been able to you call You, youngster. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. But uh, certainly now when we, when we have school groups coming through the museum who don't remember 9-11, uh, referring to these cultural touchstones in our in our timeline, like Oklahoma City or Challenger, going all the way back to Pearl Harbor, we help to uh, kind of contextualize the assassination on that historical timeline. Well, let's contextualize it because your title is curator. I would
0: think, and and this is going to probably be a naive question, what can you possibly curate now
2: that hasn't already been curated? (laughs) Well, what we try to do at our museum is explore the life, death, and legacy of President Kennedy and also the broader history and culture of the 1960s. So we do special exhibits that relate to uh, civil rights, for example. We just recently had a traveling exhibit from the Smithsonian all about the 1968 Poor People's Campaign, linking that back to the legacy of President Kennedy. And then we also explore the the broad cultural response to the assassination uh, in art, in music, uh, to try to help people understand what Kennedy stood for and why his death still matters is still relevant to our lives today. And of course, I mean, this is not going to be a surprise to you. You're still dealing with all the conspiracy theories. That is certainly a big draw. Uh, It's interesting to see the different types of audiences that come to Dealey Plaza. There are folks who are reflecting on their own lives and kind of seeking uh, some type of catharsis, you know. Or closure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Unprocessed trauma for some, you know, kind of confronting the site of the assassination in person and those childhood memories they still carry with them but there's also that that younger generation who see this event as a historical jigsaw puzzle and it's interesting to watch him kind of wandering the grass of elm street as if somehow the answer is still there or looking out the windows onto dealy plaza
0: okay so let me ask the stupid question okay it's my understanding that president johnson after the assassination ordered so much of the documents and the records locked up in the archives on an eyes-only basis for X number of years, and succeeding presidents extended that date. My question is, have they ever been opened?
2: Well, yeah, it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, The the, the vast majority of the documents were already uh, released by the early 1990s. After Oliver Stone's film, JFK, uh, there was a public outcry to release all of the remaining documents, and uh, President Clinton appointed the Assassination Records Review Board that uh, oversaw the gathering of all assassination-related records from all government entities into one John F. Kennedy collection at the National Archives. And uh, there was a date, I believe, in 2017 when everything remaining classified was to be released the i should add the assassination records review board declassified millions of documents um but but that 2017 date came and went, a lot of documents were released, and then you're right that, that both President Trump and President Biden have pushed the de- deadline back for certain documents on the grounds of uh, national security. There are still documents that are classified uh, relating to the assassination that have been classified for
0: 60 years on the basis of national security. What could be possibly be national security 60 years later?
2: Well, uh, not knowing what's in those documents, I can't really... Yeah, but you're comment. pretty close to a lot
0: of the other evidence that's contained in the museum, so th- there must be questions you have.
2: Well, certainly. I mean, do I think there's a smoking gun that's going to finally reveal some truth about the assassination? Probably not. What the records that have been released since 2017 have done is they've helped to clarify some aspects, particularly of Oswald's background, Oswald's trip to Mexico City, who he met, who he worked with Who he met at the Russian embassy there. (laughs) Yeah, and and, uh, what kind of surveillance was done of Oswald prior to the assassination. But as far as what remains classified, it's my understanding it's things like tax records or documents that might... Uh, you know, reveal some confidential government source that, that's either still living or family is still living that might put them in some kind of danger. That's that's my understanding. Okay, now the, the,
0: the weapon that was used, where is that gun?
2: The uh, Mandiker Carcano rifle. is The Italian in, rifle. Yes, it's in the National Archives along with all the uh, evidentiary material, the crime scene evidence, all of that was transferred to the National Archives. But not displayed? Uh, no, the National Archives occasionally will bring out a Kennedy related artifact like abraham zapruder's camera uh, and put that on display for
0: those people not old enough to remember the zapruder film it talking you know today everybody's a citizen journalist with a cell phone he just happened to have his film camera with him that day and it's the only visual record that even comes close to showing exactly the moment that Kennedy was hit.
2: Yes, absolutely. It is one of the seminal films of the uh, 20th century. And we're so fortunate the Zapruder family donated the the copyright to that film to our museum back in 1999. And since then, we have amassed an enormous collection of audiovisual material, including three of the four home movies that actually captured the fatal shot on film. Where Kennedy's head goes and snaps back. Yeah, yeah.
0: Now, the other words I have to share with you... Which, of course, I've been hearing for sixty years. Grassy Knoll. Mm-hmm. Explain the
2: uh, the Grassy Knoll is there. It's this uh, very small grassy incline um, on uh, on Elm Street. And okay, the vast majority of the eyewitnesses felt that shots were fired from the Texas School Book Depository, but there was a handful that felt like there may have been a shot fired from a different location because they saw some smoke coming from the Grassy Knoll. There were a couple of individuals that that did testify that they saw smoke coming from that that area, and there were a number of eyewitnesses who followed a police officer who, who parked his motorcycle and ran up the grassy knoll in the aftermath of the assassination. But but the, the end of that story is they found no evidence of a gunman. They found cigarette butts and muddy footprints, and very quickly thereafter, within 10 minutes or so of the shooting, the Texas School Book Depository was sealed off, and they discovered the sniper's perch in the southeast corner of the 6th floor 45 minutes after the assassination.
0: And they arrested Lee Harvey off. Oswald in a movie theater, correct?
2: That's right. After the assassination, Oswald, who was an employee at the Texas School Book Depository, he left the building, made his way to his rooming house in the Oak Cliff section of Dallas, where he picked up a pistol, and a few blocks away at the corner of... 10th and Patton Streets, Officer J.D. Tippett was shot and killed, allegedly by Oswald. And then on foot, Oswald went to the uh, Texas Theater. He was kind of ducking in and out of alcoves uh, along Jefferson uh, as police cars responding to the Tippett shooting were going by. And he actually went into the theater without buying a ticket. And the uh, ticket taker called the police and they converged on the theater. At this point, looking for the man in connection with the shooting of the police officer. Not realizing... Yeah. It could have been him, yeah. So, so Oswald, amazingly, was arrested between 80 and 90 minutes after the shooting in Dealey Plaza, came to police headquarters, and suddenly there was this discovery that the missing employee from the Texas School Book Depository was, him. was right there in police headquarters. Wow. You know, we're still living in an era where people do
0: civil rights reenact, civil war reenactments. You know, they're going to do the battle. Is there any such thing as a reenactment where people are driving slowly around the corner from the book depository trying to reenact the moment where Kennedy got shot?
2: Well, it has certainly happened a number of times for film and television productions. Oliver Stone shut down Dealey Plaza for two weeks to recreate the assassination a number of times, and it's been done for uh, many productions since then, like the Stephen King miniseries and uh, Rob Reiner's film, LBJ. Uh, you also have a fair number of documentaries, Discovery Channel, National Geographic, that, that shut down Elm Street for certain periods to reconstruct the assassination from a scientific perspective. So for those people who come to Dallas, who
0: come to the, to the, to the sixth-floor museum, they get up to the sixth-floor?
2: The, the the core exhibit on the sixth floor does explore the life, death and legacy of Kennedy and uh, the two areas where evidence was found. The southeast corner sniper's perch, it's protected behind glass, but you can get up to it and look into it. It's been reconstructed based on crime scene photographs. And then in the northwest corner where the rifle was stashed uh, between two stacks of boxes, we do have that area Preserved, looking as it did that day. And we do have an identical Carcano from the same production line as the uh, the one in the National Archives on display. And the biggest surprise for people visiting the museum? It's interesting because I f- feel like most people come to the museum with some general idea about what they believe, whether they believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone or a conspiracy. When they look out that window onto the landscape of Dealey Plaza, it simply validates their worldview. They either see Dealey Plaza as a small space uh, where it's certainly possible one man could do this, or they see a triangulation of crossfire with the potential for multiple gunmen.
0: My thanks to Stephen. When it comes to chefs in Dallas... Dean Faring is one of the legends. The food scene may have evolved since I first came to Texas back in 1972. Yes, it was that long ago. But some might say Dean Faring perfected it. Dean Faring, welcome, man.
4: Peter, great to be here and always great to see you. So in 1972... They were still log cabins in <laughs> Dallas, Texas, right? Uh, you know,
0: I, I will tell you what I did in 1972, and you're going to laugh. I went out to do a story for Newsweek on cattle rustling. I went, <laughs> I I did. I went over to Wendy Ryan's in the stockyards in Fort Worth. They suited me up with my big Texas hat and my chaps and my big belt buckle. And boy, did I look stupid. And then I went riding with the last of the Texas Rangers, Into northeastern Texas and Idabel, Oklahoma, and Texarkana, Texas, and Texarkana, Arkansas, looking for rustlers. And you know what? We found them. I mean, they were still doing it. No way. We
4: did. And I'll Peter, that is a great story.
0: Well, it gets better because I mean, imagine hop along Greenberg here on a horse. That's that's funny (laughs) enough. But we go riding. uh, You you cannot make this up. We go riding into Idabel, Oklahoma. We ride into town, right? And we, we hitch our horses to the post in front of a big steakhouse. And I should paint the other picture for you, which will come as no surprise to you because you and I have known each other for a long time. I had a ponytail. I had a beard. Uh, and I was the only car that didn't have a rifle rack on the back of it. And, and we walk into this restaurant, which is jammed with all the locals during lunchtime, serving steak. And if you don't like steak, there's steak. And I, yeah. I walked in. And they took one look at me. And the place went really silent. And it, you know, it was, I, I was having visions of my cousin Vinny all over again. And, and the ranger... Or
4: easy rider, yeah, either or. <laughs>
0: either or. And the ranger, his name was Slim Ulan. His wife's name was Red. He walked up to the bartender and said, Luke, I want you to meet Pete Greenberg from the Newsweek. And the place was still silent. And Luke leans over. He was like 6'6". Six, six. And he leans over he looks at me. I'm not making this up. And this will give you an idea of Texas in 1972. He leaned over the bar. He said, Greenberg, you a Jew? And now at this point, I'm realizing they won't even find my body. And, and, and I looked at him. And I said, you know, I, I did my like Jerry Lewis impression. Yes, don't hurt me. Please don't kill me. And, and you know what? When they found out I was not going to rape the cattle or sleep with their daughters, I'm still getting Christmas cards from every everybody who was in that bar, and it was one of the <laughs> best stories did. I ever did, and it endeared me to Texas from then on in, um, and uh, and there you have it. So that was 1972 in, in Texas, but you were cutting edge when I first met you at the, at the mansion on Turtle Creek, because you were doing things with your food that nobody in Texas was doing.
4: Well, we had developed a new style of American cuisine called Southwest cuisine, which we were... Using indigenous products of Texas and putting them on a white tablecloth restaurant and fish from the Gulf, steaks from out in ranches, uh, wild game from South Texas, you know, all of the cottage farming that was going on at that time in 1985. And we loved it. I mean, we were the rebels. You know, you talk about you walking into that bar being the rebel, we were the Texas cooking rebels. And, you know, it took a while for everybody to understand exactly what we were doing because I was bringing a lot of influence from Mexico with tacos, enchiladas, and people were scratching their heads going, white tablecloth restaurant and a lobster taco. (laughs) But it all worked.
0: I mean, you know, in the restaurant business, everybody, every guy I know, including me, has a fantasy. I'd love to open a restaurant, and then I realize how fast I'd have to declare Chapter 7, not even Chapter 11. <laughs> I'd have to be liquidated. I would never not know what I'm doing. You, you've had a restaurant in one place for 17 years. That says a lot.
4: Well, it says a lot because of my stability in Dallas. I Peter, when I tell you this, don't think, but I've been a chef in Dallas for 42 years. And I got started early in Dallas, 1981. When I was 26 years old, I was running my first five-star restaurant. And right in Dallas, Texas. And it was it was a dream come true. It's exactly what I've been working for ever since I was a young kid. My dad was in the hotel business, and I was always in a kitchen and always wanted my own restaurant. And then, but the opportunity with the mansion opened up, and Carolyn Hunt owned the mansion through my whole tender there. So I knew I'd never become an owner. And then John Gall, who owns the Ritz-Carlton, came over and said, hey, you you want your own restaurant, and I, I think I tripped three times running over there. That's how fast <laughs> I was going. So,
0: all right. Well, let's let's talk about how things have changed in the menu, how things have changed in the in the Dallas food scene. But first and foremost, is there one thing you've never taken off the menu?
4: Yes, there's actually two items I've never taken off, and that is our Texas Surf and Turf, which is a barbecue rub fillet with chicken fried lobster. It's a great combination. It's been on since day one. And if I took it off, Peter, I'd have to move to New York with you. I'd have to, <laughs> you'd have to put me up for a while, you know, because people would be upset. The other is a maple black pepper soaked buffalo tenderloin on jalapeno grit. And once again, if I ever took that off, they'd run me out of town with pitchforks. So. Now,
0: now, buffalo tends to be a little bit lean and, and tough, so how do you fix that?
4: Well, we have a guy by the name of Greg in Lawton, Oklahoma, that raises our buffalo on the range. And his procedure on raising buffalo, I don't know what he does, Peter, but it is the tenderest cut of meat. I've ever seen and a great healthy cut of meat that's that and it and we marinate it in maple syrup and cracked black pepper and that gives it more of a flavor but it doesn't really marinate it to make it tender it just flavors it to give it such a great taste and people order it every night and say this is the tenderest cut of meat ever so it is possible to take a very lean cut of meat and make it very tender. We have antelope, New guy antelope from Broken Arrow Ranch south of us in South Texas, and it's the same thing, very lean. But when you put it over mesquite fire and cook it just right, it is the tenderest cut of meat
0: ever. Are you talking about low heat?
4: No, we're talking about high heat. You you need to seal it. You need to seal the meat so you don't lose any of the juices that are in it. That's that's the problem with people cooking wild game or any type of game, such as buffalo, is they overcook it. And once you overcook it, it just gets too mealy.
0: All right, so please tell me that it doesn't just taste like chicken. <laughs> no, it
4: doesn't. <laughs> no, it all has its great Meat taste to it, and that's why it's on the menu, and that's why people order it every night. It has that great taste that everybody loves.
0: Now, I ask every chef this question, so you're no exception. Is there one thing you put on the menu that you thought everybody was going to love, and nobody ordered it? And you had to dump it.
4: Yes, and it's my love for the almighty sweet bread. I, I thought, you know what? I'm yeah, you're alone, you're alone. You're alone on that one. believe me, I know I'm alone because I said, you know what I am going, because when we put on Neil Galliano, everyone says oh, that's not going to sell, no one's going to order Wild Game in your restaurant, and it has become an unbelievable seller force, and another dish that is really hard for me to take off, because people love it so much, but I said, you know I'm going to reintroduce the sweet bread. And that is the gland coming out of the calf. That is the thymus gland. And it is... An Already I'm drink. not eating it. Already I'm yeah, not eating believe it. believe me. But it has... It's like foie gras, the duck liver. It has that great little sweet taste that nobody can ever deny once they try it. But it's the thought of. Yeah. Well... Peter, I don't have to tell you. That was complete flop. In about, <laughs> in about seven days, I was changing that. <laughs> yeah.
0: My thanks to Dean, to Stephen Fagan, and to Scott McCartney. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate and review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, you know exactly what to do. Just log on to petergreenberg.com.
1: The Ion Travel podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio.
0: If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey.
1: A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.